0: Okay, good morning, uh, this, uh, this week we have the privilege of reading Parshas Truma, this morning we have the privilege of studying it, and we really transition now from uh, last week at Shabbos at Mincha when we started reading Truma, I thought to myself, oh boy, here we go, because now we start from the incredible narratives of Sefer Bratius, which are easy to Darshan, the great Avos and Imahos, and stories and storylines and clear messages, the beginning of Shmos and the Exodus, and now... Well, next week we get a little reprieve again, but Truma Tetzava and Vayaka Pakude and then Sefer Vayikra, we're into the nitty-gritty, really into the details, which is what we spoke about last week. That Parshas Mishpatim itself represents the transition from the uh, spiritual pursuits, from the ambitions, to the details. That for Judaism it's contained not in the elevated experiences, not in the heights but it's experienced in the everyday, in the mundane, and in the details. And if you didn't believe that with Parshas Mishpatim, then Shruma takes us really knee-deep in the, uh, in the details. So again, just uh, to summarize uh, the Parsha, and then we'll, we'll go into it in depth, the, uh, the beginning of Parshas Shruma kind of jumps somewhat abruptly right into the uh, Mishkan. Because kind of out of nowhere, last week's Parsha ended, remember with, we, we studied the end of last week's Parsha, the peculiar narrative that the, before Shem, the commentators debate, did it come before Mount Sinai, after Mount Sinai, before Kabbalah Sator, after Kabbalah Sator, we spoke about that at the end of last week. And then kind of abruptly, the beginning of this week, with no introduction, and with no sense of context, Hashem just says, Take from me a, uh, a Truma portion, from every person who has a generous heart. And this is the truma. And then, you know, starts to collect and tell us what it's for. And go fashion all of these kalim, go fashion all of these utensils, all of these pieces of furniture, which will serve in the temple, which will serve in the Mishkan. Without really giving us a background to what the Mishkan is about and what precipitated the Mishkan. Why do we need a Mishkan? Was a Mishkan part of the divine plan? Was it not? So, you know, we'll get to that with next week's Pasha, Not next week, with two weeks, I'm sorry. With Kisisa and Vayak al it's, it's kind of peculiar that the Egel, the Chetah Egel, the sin of the golden calf, uh, which according to many or most, really is what precipitated the Mishkan, only comes afterwards. Why does it come afterwards? We'll talk about that in the future. So anyway, we have this week, though, the beginning of the, the, uh, the commandments of building a tabernacle of a Mishkan, and all of the furniture, all of the Calum that will go therein. And of course, there's all the different interpretations. Why is it V'yichu truma? It should be V'yitnu truma we should give a gift, give the charity. Why v'yik Why does God use the term to take as opposed to to give? But uh, a lot of comments on this. The famous verse that God says, make for me a, a sanctuary and I will dwell in them. It's grammatically incongruent. It should say, make for me a sanctuary and I'll dwell in it. What do you mean dwell in them? To which, of course, all of the commentaries talk about that the real sanctuary is not in a building, not bricks and mortar, but it takes place in our hearts. It takes place in our hearts. It's not external to us, but it's something which is internal. The great Kabbalist a few centuries ago wrote the song, Belvavi Mishkan Evne, In my heart I will build a sanctuary. And, uh, and that's really what God wants of us. And therefore that introduction, that sentence itself, um, helps us appreciate an answer to a very puzzling question. We don't have a beis hamikdash today. We don't have a, a, a tabernacle today. So we're going to wait in that waste. We're going to take up four parshios. Four parshios with all the details, the measurements, the lengths, the width, the heights, all the detailed measurements of all these pieces of furniture for something which is arcane, archaic, and irrelevant to us. So if you understand this verse, you realize that it's not irrelevant to us at all, but the messages are very contemporary that there's tremendous symbolism within each of the utensils of the tabernacle, within each of the kelim, and there is expression of it within our lives. Because ultimately, the notion of having a mikdash, first of all is in our hearts, I would add something else, which I won't develop now, maybe another time, is really in our homes. It's our homes, the mikdash ma'at. Our home is, is a, uh, a tabernacle in miniature. Our dining room table is the shulchan, and uh, so on and so forth our attitude towards our home and what we do in our home and what we speak in our home and so on really reflects whether we've turned it and transformed it into a, a tabernacle but the pasagas is important to understand to this introduction to give a context to why, why do we have four parshios of something that seems to be irrelevant um, and non-applicable to us and then we start to go through the, the, um, the calum, the utensils themselves so we have the ark the cover the table the menorah Cover of the tabernacle, the walls of the tabernacle, the exact dimensions, the partition within the tabernacle that creates a holy of holies. We have the altar, which the sacrifices are offered. You have the courtyard, and that is this week's parsha. Okay, so that's an overview. Again, it's if you came for some uplifting narrative, you chose the wrong week. This is details. <laughs> these are dimensions. This is architecture. This is uh, design. This is uh, great spirituality and great inspiration when you delve into the deeper meaning and purpose. But there's the uh, the details that uh, that take place here. Okay, so that's the overview. So what I want to spend time on is beginning with the cle of the Arum, which is chapter twenty-five, parakhafe, pasuk yud, top of page four hundred forty-six, four forty-seven, four forty-six, four forty-seven. <coughs> the Aram yeah. ok so you see that Samach again represents like, well, okay. stu- the Stumos and Psuchos okay. right the Torah is designed 25. chapter 25 verse 10. Oh, verse 10 chapter 25 verse 10 the Torah is designed the, the prokem, the breakdown of the chapters as we have them are not of our tradition they're not of our tradition they were instituted later and actually not by Jews. We understand the significant breakdown of the parsha by the margins of the way that it's laid out, by the layout itself. So when you see a Samach, if you're looking in a Mikros gedolos, what that means is Stumos. That means there's a break in the line. It's not an end of a line, new paragraph, but there's a break in the line. So if you look in the art scroll, if you're looking in a Mikros Gedolos, look at someone near you with an art scroll, and you'll see indeed that there's a break. The, the, the art scroll did us a great the stone I should say that it it's a great service by laying out lays out the text according to the way it's laid out in a Sefer Torah itself so you see that there's a break there on page 446 that's because it's a stumos it, it's a sosum if it was pesuach if it was one of pesuchos then it would after v'chein tasu it would end till the end of the line and viasuaron would be the next line so there's different ways of showing a break either a complete break with a new paragraph or a Pause, a pregnant pause, representing a break until the next section, but not a complete chapter break. Okay, so this is one of the stumos. The next thing Moshe is to instruct the Jewish people to construct is an ark. is an ark. is an aron and it's made of acacia wood. Shitim is acacia wood, and its uh, dimensions are two and a half amos. An arma is a foot and a half approximately. So two and a half amos in length and an ama and a half in width and an amma and a half in height. Okay? So if an arma and a half is a foot and a half, you can figure out the dimensions on your own. Yeah, so that's, that's must be very small. so that's the aron. Yeah, there's a miracle actually how everything fit in the aron. The Gemara records that it was a miracle that everything fit in the aron itself. It's one of the many miracles. So you build this uh, ark out of acacia wood, but it's not like a normal piece of furniture. Normal piece of furniture is uh, if it's made out of wood, it's made out of wood. What you see is what you get. This is vitsipiso, so zahav tahor, mi'ba'is u'melchutz titzapenu, v'asisa Allah zer zahav saviv. It's made out of wood. Its core is acacia wood, but it is lined both internally and externally with gold. And not only that, you then embellish it by placing a golden crown, Zer Zahav Saviv. There's a golden crown that goes around the top. Golden molding, I would say, that goes around the uh, top. V'yatsakta ozahav and asata al'arba amosav, And you make... Uh, four golden rings and place them on the four corners of this ark and and then you place two of the golden rings on either side why do you have two golden rings on either side two loops two rings because you're also going to make two poles and you're going to have made, they're going to be made of acacia wood, and you're going to also cover them in gold. You take these poles and you slip them through the two rings on either side of the ark. Because it becomes the means by which you carry it. You don't carry it with your hands underneath the ark, but there are poles going through each side of the ark, a pole on each side. And it would rest on the shoulders of those who carried it. In the rings of the ark shall the poles, the staves, rest. You're not allowed to remove them. And you will place in the aron the edus, the testimony. What's the testimony? The tablets that I give you. That I will give you. Okay, so that's the ark itself, and then we'll get into the cover of the ark. The Asisa is Zahav Tahor. And now you need to make a cover for the ark. It should be made of pure gold. Amasayim Achetzi And it will make sense that its dimensions are the same as the ark, because if it's a cover, it's got to fit entirely right on top. The Asisa Shnaim Kruvim Zahav. What does the top of this cover look like? You make two Kruvim out of gold on top. What are Kruvim? Cherubs? cherubs. Cherubs, thank you. What are Cherubs? Like okay, two, we'll talk about. Miksha ta'ase osa mishnei kitzos ha-ka-polis. They are hammered out uh, on both ends of the cover. Now, other hammered out of the gold. Va'asei kruv echad mikatze mizeh, kruv echad mikatze mizeh. They are made on either side of the cover. Min ha-ka-polis ta'ase osa kruvim kitzosav. On the cover shall you make the uh, two... Um, him, on the two ends. So, is the continuation of the bowl? Yes. And what is their these angelic figurines when you're uh, crafting them? When you're when you're molding them, what's their image? What should they look like? So they should spread their wings upward. ala ish el So first of all, their wings spread upward. They cover the. Uh, cover with their wings. The ark is covered by their wings, and they're facing one another. El Akaporas kruvim, towards the covering, shall the faces of the kruvim face. give you the height of the cover. That's a good question. Why doesn't it give us the height of these kruvim? The height of the cover. Both. You place the cover on top of the aron. But in the aron, within it you place the tablets that I will give you. You'll know I am there. It's a testimony that I am the, to the fact that I am there. And uh, that's where we'll meet. Va'ad. That's where we'll have our vad, our rendezvous. And uh, I will speak to you from on top of the cover, between the two kruvim. In other words, God doesn't mean He's physically present there. God is not physically represented or limited anywhere. But He means, if you are to try to create some imagery, when you're hearing my voice, Moshe, and you want to have imagery of where it's emanating from, picture it coming from right between these two figurines, sitting on top of the ark. And that's where I will communicate everything that I will teach you, to command to the Jewish people. Okay, so that's the section that I want to look at today is the forming of the Aron. If you want to see a picture of this, by the way, the stone Chumashah has on page 447. A nice picture. You see the gold plain box with its dimensions. And then you see the rings on each corner. There are rings for the golden staves staves to be put through the, the poles and then along the time you have the Zer Zahav Saviv along the top you have the golden um, molding and on top you have the Kruvim these figurines whose wings uh, spread upward towards heaven they face each other and together it represents the cover ok there you have the picture yes why did they put the carpet on top and then put in they to the bed? yeah ok we'll get that it's a good question Yes. I know that the coven were created in the sixties, which day would they create I'm not sure. I don't know. Okay. So let's see, Pasekyat. So Vyasuaron Atsey Shitim. So um if you look at the Balaturium of Yaakov ben Asher, Vyasuaron Bukulum Kse Vyasisa chutmi baarun dehse viasu. All of the other utensils it says viasisa in the singular. One person is to make it. And here the Aron is in the plural, V'yasu. And everyone's bothered by it. The Balaturim mentions it. Shekola kelev asa Shlomo ki Because Shlomo, all of the utensils were replicated except for the Aron. Forget, it's the question that that uh, they're all made. It, with all of them it says V'yasu, so the singular to command to made. Except here it's V'yasu. The Aron, says the Baal Turim, Osios Oran. Why is it called an Aron? Why is it called an Ark? So he says the Aron, an Ark, why is an Ark called an Aron, I should ask. Because Aron, the root of the word Aron is Or, is light. Sheish Ba Oran She because there is a light that emanates, the light of the Jewish people. In other words, the Luchos, the Torah that's contained within the Ark, illuminates the Jewish people it's wondrous. Nezer. So the Baal Turim says that the Aron is the same numerical value as Nezer, the crown of Torah Ora Al we know the Mishnah in Avos, that there are three crowns, Keser, uh, Keser Kahuna, and Keser machus, and Keser Torah, Keser Shem Tov is Ola Al-Gabeim. But among those Ksaram, those crowns, it's the Keter Torah, it's the crown of Torah, which is the highest. The oro represents, in the Mishkan, in its formulation, it represents Torah. And, uh, and uh, therefore, the Hebrew word for it is aron, or it illuminates, it provides light, it provides warmth, provides instruction, it provides guidance for all who tap into it. Yes? Why do they call it the casket? Hold on, hold on. The casket is also called Oh, that's a good question. Why is a casket for a human being, you're saying, called an aron? Yes, I think the answer is very simple, that just like the aron held the Torah... A human being we are to treat as a living Torah. Why is it that you have to bury a Torah, you have to bury a human being? Because the human being is no less of a safer Torah. There's a Gemara, the Gemara describes the conversation between two great Rabbis, they stand up when a, a Tamar Chacham walks by, and he says, if I stand for Torah, which is written on parchment and with ink, shouldn't I stand for a living Torah? And that's the attitude that we have, is the human being is the living Torah. The human being has the Torah imprinted on their soul. They have lived Torah. They have transformed themselves themselves to be a Torah scroll. So that's the uh, the aron. That's that's why we bury a person in an Aaron, because. They too, uh, it too houses the living Torah, but not only that. Moreover, it has a light that illuminates from it. That just like the aron, even though it was closed and the tablets were contained therein, but it provided illumination. So too, when we lose our loved one and it's closed, it's a casket which is closed. Nevertheless, it continues to provide illumination by our uh, by our remembering and recalling and tapping into their their positive spirits. Yes. Can you talk about Noah and the aron. Well, that's a teva We don't call that right. That's not, we call it the ark in English. In English, more. In Hebrew, that's really more called a tefa. Yeah, I don't know if they went about 10%. First of all, the passage before it said, Yasu will make that. It does say the And if they did this, then everybody did this except for Shlomo, it should say the Asisa Aram, and all the others should say the Arsu. Yeah. It seems backwards. Okay, we'll see, we'll see the other before Mephorshim in a second deal with it. Rudy, you had a comment. I say it's written here that the case of the nation and that you, everyone should have it in their Oh, okay, good. So let's see, that, let's see that comment. So look at the Ramban. The Ramban also is bothered by the same thing, V'yasu Aron. Ya'achzerah b'nei Yisrael is coming to the Mala. V'acharechein v'tsipisa oso. In other words, V'yasu Aron is in the plural because now we're going back to the Jewish people and giving them collectively this instruction. But then if you notice, it says, even within the Aron, Vitzipisa oso should be vitzip vitzipisim. is singular. (coughs) So viasu is back in the plural. You collectively make the aron, fashion the ark. But the uh, ramban notices, and then it returns to the singular that we were used to. Vitzipisa viatzakta vekulan belashin yachid ki moshe kinegit kol yisrael. And why is the rest in the singular? Because Moshe. Corresponds with the totality of the Jewish people. Moshe is connected everybody. And the Ramban says, What's the reason that this is unique? That the other Kalim, at least, George, maybe the Mishkan as a whole was Vyasuli Mishkan, but the other kalem is V'asisa. Why they the Aron unique, says the Ramban? Because everyone should have access to Torah see, when it comes to the altar, when it comes to the menorah, so there were limitations on who could interface. It was the koanim, it was the priests who brought sacrifices. And it was the priests who who were the ones who lit the menorah. There were limitations on who could do what. But when it comes to Torah, equal access. Everybody has a right. Everyone is entitled to the legacy, to the tradition, to the teaching of Torah. And that's what the Ramban is suggesting. That's why it's viasu. Everything else is viasisa. But when it comes to Torah, which is what the Aaron represents, that's Vyasu. And he continues Because <laughs> when it comes to the other Caleb, it's limited. When it comes to the Aaron, let everybody come. I want everyone to have a piece of it. <laughs> And what does it mean in a practical sense? So one of three things, says the Ramban. Either everyone should donate a piece of the gold, a fraction of the gold, so that when the urn is constructed that will house the Torah, everyone has participated in its construction. Everyone is represented in upholding that Torah. That's number one. Or number two is maybe we know the architect of the Mishkan, the real builder, is Bitzala, which we'll get to. Which is also unusual, that here we give all the instructions without ever having yet hired our contractor. But anyway, so the second possibility what it means Vyasu, everyone should participate, means everyone should assist Bitzala in some manner. And the third possibility is is at least everyone should have intent pay attention, have kavana in the construction of the Aron as if everyone was participating. But for the Ramban, the reason it changes from Vyasisa to Vyasu, the singular to the plural, is to say because the Aron represents Torah, everyone should have access, everyone should participate, everyone should be part of what the Aron symbolizes. Somebody had a question? I saw a hand. Okay? Never mind. The Kleyakar uh, also, the clayakar also picks up on the Vyasisa and Vyasu the Klayaker, or So the Kleakar is giving a little introduction here. He says, I don't really need to write an extensive commentary. That's his introduction to his extensive commentary. <laughs> I don't really need to write an extensive commentary because all the detailed laws of how to build these utensils and how the tabernacle should function—that's all contained within the—that's uh, all contained within the Talmud. You don't really need me for that. I don't have anything to add, and I certainly don't want to take away. <laughs> So the only thing I'll add is insight into what was the real intent, what's the mysticism, what's the uh, higher, purpose, higher meaning to some of the subtle nuances within the text and within the utensils themselves. Because it's not just a random, and it's not just coincidence, and everything has a deeper meaning. And everything has, I would add, a symbolism. The symbolism is as relevant for us today as it was for those who were building and benefiting from the Mishkan itself. And each of the commentary struggles to say, well, this is unusual. What's this nuance coming to teach? What's the message? What's the meaning in this? Even the great Rashi, who the Kliyakar is uh, familiar, as we should be after our years of studying, that Rashi only comes, as Rashi says in a number of places, "Ain mikriyotzi ledim pshuto." Rashi says, "I only come to teach the pshat." What's pshat? The simple meaning of the text. In other words, every text is subject to four layers of interpretation, at least four. They are pardes, pshat, remes, drash, and sod, which are the simple meaning of the text, and the hints, the allusions in the text, and the homiletical interpretations of the, of the text and the Kabbalistic interpretation of the text. There are at least four layers of interpretation to each and every verse to every text. In fact, one could argue there are 70 layers of interpretation. It's not four, it's 70. One could argue it's not 70, but we know that there are 600,000 letters in the Torah, which is not true, but, Mar says 600,000 letters in the Torah corresponding with each person. Every Jew has a right to interpret the text. So there's an infinite number of interpretations. So, forget the number. The point is there are many interpretations. The Kliakar is... Uh, is um, pointing out what we know that Rashi comes is very simple just the meaning of the text he's not looking to provide any homiletical interpretations he's not giving a big speech Russia, he just wants the simple meaning and yet even he <laughs> Rashi can't contain himself even Rashi can't contain himself not only does he explain the simple interpretation, here's the width, here's the height, here's the depth, but Rashi himself gives some symbolism. For example, that the uh, certain altar comes to uh, achieve atonement for certain things. <laughs> the 12 uh, springs of water, correspond with the 12 tribes and the 70 elders. <laughs> So he says, if Rashi, This is all, again, the purpose of our class, for those who are here and for those listening at home, is not, although I'm thinking about changing this, but for now, the purpose of our class is to be text-based. We're studying the commentaries, how they <laughs> dissected the text. So the Kliyakar is giving his introduction. He says, Look, I know that the purpose of our commentaries is to dissect text. But this text kind of if we dissect it, the laws are in the Gemara. You don't need me just to repeat and compile all the laws in the Gemara that dissected text. I want to dissect it by offering homiletical interpretations, even though that violates my general uh, thesis. If it was good enough for Rashi, it's good enough for me. And so the first thing I want to do, says the Kliyakar, is talk about the three utensils that all had in common the golden molding, the golden crown above it. And they were the ark, they were the table, and they were the altar. The ark, the shulchan, on the table, and the mizbeach, the altar. But Azal Amru, our great rabbis taught, that these three utensils correspond with the three crowns that every one of us should seek to pursue. Keser Torah, Keser Kahuna, and kesser Malchus. What does that mean, a crown? That literally we want the fanfare, the honor... No, it doesn't mean pursue honor, but it means pursue in reputation. That we want to be identified, associated with these pursuits the pursuit of Torah, and of priesthood, however you'll define that, and of royalty. And if you look, you'll notice that these three utensils the ark, the table, and the altar were all distinguished in their measurements. We'll get into it in a moment. It's not a coincidence. And here's again the beautiful symbolism when you study the text and you're offering interpretation. You'll notice that when it comes to the Mizbeach, the altar, all of the measurements are whole numbers. One amma, two ama, three amma, five amma. It's whole numbers. When it came to the Aram, we just read the Ark, all the numbers were? What are those called? Integers? Yeah. Halves? Fractions? Fractions. Fractions. Fractions? They were not complete numbers. Not two, three, One and a half by two and a half. By, it was all half numbers. And the shulchan, the table, had some whole numbers and some fractions. davarhu! Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Isn't that interesting, says the Kliyakar. Is it a coincidence? That's a perfect example the Kliyakar is trying to show you. You could read the text and say, okay, that's random. For whatever reason, God gave these random measurements that when it came to the ark, they were all fractions. And when it came to the altar, they were all whole. And when it came to the table, there was some whole and some half. Is that coincidence? Or is there more? So listen to what the Kliyakar says. A beautiful (laughs) Kliyakar. Our Rabbi said that we should see what's above us. Our Rabbis taught us, this is very important, he's sowed. Speak about this in Parshas Baaloscha. Opening Ramban there. Competitiveness. Does Judaism endorse competition, competitiveness? It's a very interesting subject. In fact, I once gave a a talk about this, and Alan Vangrad, who was a Super Bowl winner and now is a observant Jew, was there and appreciated. We had a whole discussion afterwards because you know when you when you wear a Super Bowl ring on your finger, you can appreciate the uh, discussion about the value, the value and the down. Falls of, of uh, competition. So, does Judaism endorse competition? Does not endorse competition? So, I say, as somebody with a very competitive spirit, that absolutely it does. Unconditioned, qualified, however, that the competition is driving you to be better for the right reasons. So, for example, when did I give this, Drusha? When, when, our, when Aaron, Moshe's brother, Aaron, the great leader of the Jewish people, Sees um, all the princes bringing their sacrifices when this Mishkan that we're reading all about is finally completed and it's inaugurated and it's celebrated and they have a uh, Chanukah Samishkan Aaron is jealous and he says to God it's not fair to me not fair to me I want to participate why can't I be among the princes that I see him offering these sacrifices and I was always troubled by that question it's not fair to me what is Aaron two years old I mean, my kids I have that conversation with. It's not fair to me. I didn't get an extra chicken nugget. I didn't get to go to the mall. I didn't get the ice cream. It's not fair to me. Aaron? Aaron, second only to his brother Moshe, great leader of the Jewish people, is complaining to God, it's not fair to me? And how does God respond? He doesn't give a pachinpon on me. He doesn't tell Aaron, what's the matter with you? What are you, two years old? It's not fair to me? Relax. Everyone gets what they get. They don't get upset. What I tell my kids. No, he doesn't say that. God says, Don't worry. You'll get yours. You get to light the menorah. You get to light the candelabra. You get to light the menorah. Don't be upset. You get to do something special too. If I would say that to my kids, it would reinforce their jealousy. So, what's going on? Why didn't God tell Aaron, What's the matter with you? And I think the answer is that a healthy competition is valuable, it's productive. Aaron wasn't jealous, it's not fair to me. I want to bring sacrifices, I want my 15 minutes of fame, I want to be on TV, I want to be at the head of the nation, I want the honor, I want the glory. Aaron was driven by their opportunity to say to God, I wish I had an opportunity to come close to you through the offering of these sacrifices. To which God responds, you'll have your chance to come close to me in your way. Don't worry. Don't worry. And the same thing is true here. The Kliyakar is quoting, Kinnah so from Tar bachachma. The Gemara has a principle, Gemara Basra, I believe it is. Kinnah so from Tar bachachma. That means jealousy among scholars promotes wisdom. Right? Think about it. If every professor could go to a university and achieve tenure, and he never had pressure to publish, it would, it would stifle achievement. It would stifle our intellectual growth. It's the pressure to publish and it's the competition among scholars that leads to increased wisdom. So, Aval, continuing the Kliyakar. So, when it comes to, so here's what the Kliyakar is saying. When it comes to spiritual pursuits, always look at the people above you. Always look at the people above you. Someone else knows more Torah? Aspire. Be driven. Want to be like them. Somebody else. Has greater character, more patience, slower to anger, look at them as a model. Try to be like them. Someone else volunteers more hours, gives more charity, look to them. Be jealous of them. Want to be like them. But when it comes to worldly pursuits, you're seeking wealth and honor, look at who's below you. (laughs) Because if you see the person below you has less money and has less children, or nachas from them, or has less prestige or prominence or honor, then you'll say, you know what? I'm pretty happy with what I have. The Gemara in says, when a person is davening, they should place their eyes below and their heart above. So it means, When you're davening for wisdom, when you're davening for spirituality, when you're davening for virtue, Look around the Shul, the people who, who you want to be like, who I wish I could have that, I wish I can, I aspire, I am ambitious to be as, as knowledgeable, I wish I knew as much Torah, or concentrated as much in davening. But when you're davening for money, when you're davening for a house, when you're davening for your job, when you're davening for a car, look around the shul and find somebody who you know has less. And say to yourself, Hashem, you know what? With what I have, it's plenty. <laughs> so now the Kleacher is going to get to his point. So when it came to the Ark, all of the dimensions were fractions. Because our attitude to Torah should be, I am incomplete. I've never arrived. I've never achieved. I never have everything. I need to work. I need to struggle. I want more. I'm a fraction. I'm not a whole. When you think of a fraction, what do you think immediately? It needs its corresponding fraction to be whole. So too with wisdom. So too with wisdom. I'm oh, sorry. Wow, this is a long clayoger. So too with chachma. You know why a Talmud Chacham is called a Talmud Chacham? I remember learning this when I was a kid. It's one of those few things that stuck with me because it had a very big impression on me. The greatest title we have. For the person who knows the most Is that they're a Talmud Chacham A great Rashi Yeshiva A great Rosh Kolo A great Rabbi A great man, a great woman Talmudah Chachamah The greatest title, appellation That we can ascribe to somebody Who has achieved incredible knowledge Is Talmud Chacham What does Talmud mean? A A student of wisdom So think about it The person who knows the most We describe as incomplete A student needing to study, needing to learn. They're a Talmud Chacham. They're not a Chacham. I'm not knocking the Sephardim who call their Chacham. But, uh, but even the Sephardim would refer to the Chacham as a Talmud Chacham. Uh, chacham for them replaces Rav. It's a replacement for the term Rabbi. But they would still describe in terms of an adjective as a Talmud Chacham. And the reason we describe is because the wisest people are the ones learn. who realize that they have so much more to learn. The biggest danger is when a person feels I'm done, I'm complete, I've arrived, I know all there is to know. A person knows the most when they realize how little they know. That's when you're okay. That's when you're in good shape. That's when you're in good shape. When I speak to young rabbis, I was once a young rabbi. When I speak to young... No, trust me. When I speak to... uh, (laughs) When I speak to young rabbis, I tell them like that's... You know, rabbis. There's a great. This is a very important idea. Rabbis are very tempted through their congregants to uh, to feel that they know everything. They ask a lot of questions to congregants, and rabbis erroneously feel a pressure to give an answer on the spot and imply that they know everything at their fingertips. And what happens is they start to believe it. <laughs> First couple times they give an answer, they know they're smudging it, or they think it says it there that thing, or they remember hearing that from someone else and then the second time and the third time and eventually they start to think you know what I know everything and when I'm giving these answers I know I'm giving the truth the best thing most important thing for a rabbi to know is that they don't know a lot and to remember that they need to look it up sedek sedek Tirduf, uh, you know when you, it's true for justice but it's true for learning as well the obligation to look it up the obligation to pursue it the obligation to, uh, to check it, so it's, uh, it's very important, it's a very big danger in any area in life, I would imagine the same is true whether you're a lawyer, whether you're a doctor, whether you're an athlete, it's the same is true in any, uh, in any area of life, when you feel you've arrived and you know everything, is when you'll begin to go down, it's only when you aspire to continue to grow, so that's why the kliyakar is explaining so beautifully, the dimensions of the Ark, the Ark is the symbol of Torah, of wisdom, of the Jewish wisdom. So it is given in fractions, so that its students remember, we are fractions. You can never conquer Torah, you can never arrive, you can never make a siyam and say, I'm done, now I'm going to turn to physics. You never finish, you never complete Torah. You never complete Torah. That's the Mishnah Navas, who is a wise person who learns from everyone who realize that he is incomplete and continues to continue to study. <laughs> the same is true with knowing Hashem. That one has achieved knowledge of Hashem when they know that they don't know Hashem. <laughs> sounds paradoxical. But the knowledge of Hashem is the knowledge that I can never know Hashem. <laughs> so beautiful. The Ark had dimensions that were width, length, and depth. And all three of the dimensions were fractions. Corresponding with the three areas of wisdom. The depth of the Ark corresponds with the depth through which we could know anything. I can never feel I've plumbed all the depths of every, any given topic, and I know it, in terms of all of its depths, and the width represents my mind, that my limitations, the boundaries on my capacity to understand, the and the length, I knew the length of acquiring the knowledge. So therefore, all three of the dimensions of the Ark were fractions to show that all three of our attitude towards wisdom, understanding its depths, our capacity to understand, our pursuit of understanding, all are incomplete. We've never fully arrived. So now, in great contrast, when it comes to the table, what does the table represent? The crown of royalty. Why does it represent the crown of royalty? Because our attitude towards the table shows our dignity. Are we dignified? Are we aristocracy? Are we distinguished? <laughs> what, was on, what was on the shulchan? The, the lachem upon him, the showbread. Mm-hmm. What does it res- correspond with? But Parnassah corresponds with Parnassah, with livelihood. Shlemos. <laughs> So therefore, some of the dimensions of the table were whole. Why? Because our attitude towards Parnassa, for example, should be, our livelihood should be, I'm whole. I have what I need. Because what's what's joy? What's happiness? Being satisfied with your lot. (laughs) Yaakov, as opposed to Esav, Esav said, Yeshli Rav, I have a lot. When they reunite, Yaakov and Esav, after their conflict, when they reunite and resolve their conflict, and they ask one another, "New, how have you been all these years? What's doing? Esav says, Yeshli Rav, I've got a lot. Yaakov says, Yeshli Kol, I have everything. And that's, of course, one of, another one of my favorite Debrei Torah. Invention, when we say Bakol Mikol Kol, it's because Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov each used the term Kol, and one of the great things that they transmitted to us, one of the great legacies of Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov is the capacity to have an attitude of kol. That whatever I have, it's everything. What I have is everything. Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov shared a capacity to have an attitude of kol. That not rav, not I have a lot and I wish I had more, but an attitude of kol that I have everything. But some of the dimensions of the shulchan are fractions. Why? The reason is because you shouldn't affirm and validate every temptation that man has. We shouldn't feel whole in all of our worldly desires. Some of them need to be broken. Some of them need to be shattered. So some of the dimensions of the Shulchan were incomplete to show the importance of shattering some of the worldly temptations that we have. That's why when it comes to bread, we use the term to break bread, Shvira, to break i 'll explain it further with the Shochan. Why is it called breaking bread because we 're breaking down our let me think about it food why did God give us food? God could have had us nourished in a way that we wouldn 't need to eat food like the air that we breathe nobody calculates how much air they 're going to have is this healthy air unhealthy, fatty air is going to make me thin? How will I look in this air that I breathe? Why we breathe air? It's a natural instinct. Food we have to eat. Why did God create a world like that? God looked into His Torah. He looked into His value system, and then He created a world corresponding with it. So, what was the value He wanted us to learn from food? Have to earn it. Have to earn it. So, I think there's a number of values. One is earning it. It takes work. You have to toil. It's effort. It's not nice After, not to be a glutton. But I would say, if there's one word I had to associate, it would be discipline. An attitude towards food is discipline. Not to eat something that doesn't belong to me. Not to eat without saying thank you for it. Not to eat something that's unhealthy and that will compromise my physical well-being. It teaches me, it cal- it, it cultivates a sense of, of discipline. So when you're eating the lechem, what you're doing is, you're breaking down your temptation. You walk into that restaurant, you open the menu... You want to order all that unhealthy, delicious, fried, fatty, carb food. But the process of eating is a process of of shvira. It's a process of breaking down your temptation to recognize that my commitment to be healthy must supersede my commitment to my temptation, to my appetite. I have to put my health before my appetite. And that process is a process of breaking down, of shvira. There's a billion, gazillion dollar industry of diets and right. and, and uh, you know, weight watchers and all these different things because it's not easy. It requires you to break yourself down, shatter your temptation, your appetite, your desires. So that's why it's called breaking bread. You're breaking down your spirit in terms of controlling with discipline what you're going to eat with the bread. So that's what the Kliyakr says. The Aron was all fractions. Because when it comes to spiritual pursuits, we have to realize that we are incomplete and we're constantly ambitious and aspiring to grow. When it comes to the shulchan, which represents the physical world, so part of them are whole to realize, you get what you get, you don't get upset that I should be happy with my lot, I'm complete, I'm whole with what I have. Cold. But part of them are a fraction Why to teach that I need to break down my my appetite, I need to break down my temptations, I need to break my... My uh, lack of control. Yes. What about thoughts? Uh, what about thoughts? Also, in terms of breaking the thoughts, also, well, that's where that's where appetite takes place. The appetite does not take place in your stomach; It takes place in your thoughts. Yeah. So, appet- so the thoughts—not uh, the the temptation—doesn't only refer to the world of food. You could say the same thing when it comes to the world of if the shulchan represents physical pleasure, it's not only the physical pleasure of food, it's the physical pleasure of all physical pleasures. And the same thing is true. There's temptations that we are to control our thoughts. We are to feel whole and complete and happy. And on the other hand, we are to feel broken that we need to break down the temptation to shatter the desires that are unhealthy. But when it came to the altar, all of its dimensions were whole. What was the purpose of the altar? What was its symbolism? Its symbolism is atonement. To achieve forgiveness. So when it comes to the pursuit of forgiveness and atonement, it symbolizes our capacity to become whole once again. Don't feel broken. Maybe you had a bad day. Maybe you made a bad choice. Maybe you showed bad judgment. Maybe you hurt a relationship. The Mizbeach, which is the mechanism and the means through which we achieve atonement and we become whole, all of its dimensions are whole to show that Tshuva, repentance, gives us the capacity, the capability to become whole yet again. You see the Kliakr goes on and on, but that's the Kliakr's basic premise. I and mean, I think it's beautiful. He's giving an introduction to these Kalim and the reason it's so beautiful is because, again, it shows why they're relevant to us. That even though we don't have them, we don't have a temple, Please God, we'll have it soon. We don't have these utensils. We don't have high, we don't have priests operating with sacrifices. But nevertheless, the symbolism of each should also define and shape our homes. Our shulchan is the place in our home where we where we eat, where we eat, and um, and uh, our attitude towards the kind of conversation that we have there. Our attitude towards food. Are we gluttons? Do we eat with any self-control? And so on. The Shulchan is able to have the same impact. The Aron. Do we have a bookcase with sfarim? Is there Torah illuminating our home? I think one of the biggest things for kids is to learn. You know, you go to some homes and there's, there's barely a Chumash in the house. Even if you're not going to open the sfarim, but the importance of a Jewish bookcase, the importance of every Jewish home to have a Jewish <coughs> library, it defines a home. It has this this transformative power through osmosis. Just that a person who's in that presence understands this is defined as a Jewish home. What are the books that make up a Jewish home? What if you have them on your iPad or on your Kindle? Does that also contribute to a Jewish home? I don't know. But yeah, not on Shabbos, maybe during the week. But, um, but the point is, the Aaron, the Torah, is there Torah that illuminates the home? you look on a person's night table you learn a lot about them what are they reading at night do they ever read anything that has a spiritual pursuit are they ever involved in challenging themselves intellectually in terms of Torah in terms of spiritual pursuits and so on and so forth so that's just the Kliyakar unfortunately we're almost out of time but that was just the the Kliyakar I thought it was important both because of his introduction where he acknowledges that even Rashi who has a fidelity to the Pshat has to go off here so it's okay for me to also as well and then he does that and explains a lot of the symbolism back to the Aram back to the Aram so um, look at the Balaturim it was one and a half in length one and a half in width and one and a half in depth so the Balaturim gives another insight why all of the measurements are given as fractions And he says, because in order to learn Torah, you have to see, you have to be humble. You have to be modest. Why? We talked about this a little bit with Parshas Yisro. You have to be capable of listening. If you have all the answers, you're never going to learn anything in life. If you want to learn, you have to recognize, I don't have all the answers. I have what to learn. It takes humility. It takes humility. See, if you come in thinking you know everything... Even when you're learning Torah, you're simply projecting your values onto Torah. You have to come in as a clean slate, tabla rasa, you have to just empty yourself, delete, purge. And then you could say, I want Torah to leave its impression on me. So the reason the measurements of the aron were incomplete, were fractions, says the Baal a little bit like the Kliyakar, but different, is to communicate that to really learn Torah, you have to be a fraction, you have to be modest, you have to recognize, I have what to learn, I don't have all the answers. There's something for Torah to teach me. V'yasu Aron. Yud Parshiyos, I'm still going in the Balaturim. Ten of the Parshiyos begin We have ten verses that say V'yasu, viasisa, viasu, viasisa, You shall make, you shall fashion. The Balaturim says it corresponds with the ten sayings through which God created the world. I think the deeper meaning there is that these ten commandments of what to build in the Mishkan. The Mishkan is a world in miniature. The Mishkan contains the symbol of all that we are to accomplish. It is to illuminate, inform, and guide, and inspire the world. Zahav Tahormi Ba'isum Yechutz. Now, the Aron was made of acacia wood as its core, and it was covered in gold on the inside and the outside. Why was it covered in gold on the inside and the outside? What's the symbolism? What's the meaning for us in a contemporary way? So the Baal says. The gematria, the numerical value of with gold that was covered inside and out is that a chacham, a wise person his inside is like his outside What does that mean? It means consistent What's integrity? The word in, in, integrity comes from the word integer What's an Integer A whole number. Integrity is to be whole, to be complete, to be consistent. (coughs) It was covered in gold on the inside and the outside, like the Gemara says, toho kaboro. If your inside and outside are not the same, that means you're not consistent. You can't on the outside look like you're all religious and virtuous and god fearing and then in private or behind the scenes you're arrogant and contemptuous, you're disgusting, you're you're mean, you're nasty. You gotta be consistent. You can't have different personas. The persona at work and the persona when you're with your family at, back at home. You can't have how you look when your friends are watching, how you daven when you're in shul, krechzing it out, everyone watches, you shuckle, And then if you ever miss daven and you're flying through it at home because it really doesn't mean anything. If, you, if, you're, if you're not consistent, toho kaboro, if your inside and your outside doesn't match, you're nothing. So the question is, if that's the case, so why not make the whole thing gold? Exactly. Why have the wood on the inside? Why have the acacia wood on the inside? Layered with gold on the outside and inside. Why not be covered with gold all the way through? Strength. Probably some kind of structure. No, wood is more of a structure than gold. That's right. That's why. So I forgot where I saw this. I forgot where I saw the following explanation. It was very powerful to me. Wood, wood is pliable. Wood is flexible. Wood is able to bend. Gold, you can melt gold down, but uh, gold regularly, you can't bend the piece of gold. No, I'm not talking about... I understand, I understand. On the whole, wood versus metal. Wood is pliable, and wood is flexible, and wood bends. And a metal is sturdy, and firm, and inflexible. And perhaps, I forgot who said this, perhaps that's the symbolism. That yeah, you have to be gold on the outside and inside because you have to be consistent. But at your core, you have to be wood, you have to be flexible. And isn't it also more humble than gold? I mean, and at your core, you have to be humble. Yeah, that's also another interpretation. Wood is warm and gold, is cold. Okay. At your core, you have to be modest and humble, even if you're consistent, having gold on the outside and inside. But more than that, you also have to be willing to be flexible. Even though you're gold, even though you have values that you're committed to, a person needs to be flexible, and that symbolism is important as well. Yes? Yeah, Elaine? It could never be heavy. it would be too heavy. Okay, that's a practical reason. <laughs> but it, it has symbolism too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, there's so many more comments here I wanted to cover. The kliyakar has Vyasu aron. He also was bothered why is it v'asisa Yasu. What's with these poles? You make poles, you cover them in gold. You have these four rings. You put the poles in. You can never remove the poles. Why is it Mimanu, You can never remove the poles. Why can't you remove the poles? <laughs> but in between carrying it. But it doesn't say. They it they say, says they, they can't be removed. They can't be removed. They should not be removed. Sh- but the, the, the noun in that sense really is right. the poles, not, not
1: you. Correct. Yasuru, Correct.
0: That, so that, that's really coming Correct. Um, if you look at Rashi, Loyasuru lo Mimenu, Liola, forever. Once you insert the poles, the poles must remain. Why must the poles remain? Why are the poles part of the definition of the ark itself? So they become holy, but so what? All, their whole purpose is to, trans, is to uh, so transfer. Yeah. <laughs> you'll, you'll always have to move. Oh, so Rav Shem Shonafalhosh is a beautiful pshat. Rav Shem Falhirsh says, the poles must remain in the ark to teach about the mobility of Torah. That Torah is never defined by a specific location. But it's always half Torah will travel. <laughs> It's not that there's a Mishkan and Torah is in the Mishkan. If you're outside the Mishkan, you don't have Torah. It's not that I live in a beautiful Orthodox community and when I have to go on business, then I can bend the rules of Kashrus or Mm -hmm. whatever else. No, Torah travels with you wherever you go. So says Rav Hirsch, part of the very construct of the Ark were poles to recognize the portability of Torah. Torah is portable. It is designed to be portable. It is designed to speak to every generation at any time, in any place. Torah was not designed for a limited population and a limited geography in a limited time. It is portable and is to be carried with us always and forever wherever we go. And says Rav Hirsch, that's why the poles have to remain. A very a beautiful interpretation of, of Rav Hirsch. Excuse me. What yes. Am I? You explain the one that is made with fractions, and the one that is made with holes, and then the one that is made with both. What does that mean? With the one that's made with both was so the shulchan. The whole represents being happy with what we have, and the broken represents breaking our appetite and our temptations that are bad. So the shulchan the had both. Represent both. The physical world, physical pleasures, the physical world. So it's whole to show that whatever we should be happy with what we have, and it's a fraction to show. That we should try to break the bad habits, the temptations that uh, that can hurt us. Because that was the, the the luchos were in the aron. The aron was the battery. It was the it was the it genera- it was the generator that generated the holiness of the mishkan. So it was the most sacred. It was it was the sacred generator that produced the the light of the mishkan. So it was housed in its most, uh, most precious place. Indeed, the poles of the Oron poked through the, the parochas and specifically gave an impression of, of a woman and provide nourishment from there. Just as a child is nourished from the mother, so too the poles would protrude from the uh, curtain to give the image of uh, Jewish people, of children being able to, pro- to receive their nourishment from the Torah, from, uh, from God. So there's a lot, of, a lot of symbolism. We are um, we're out of time. We didn't even get to get into the Kruvim at all, and the, and the cover, the Kaporas. Where does that word come for? There's a lot more to talk about, but the good news is we have Tetzava, Vayakal and Bakuday, where we're going to be revisiting a lot of the same stuff. So.